It is often said that length isn't everything, and proof of that can be found in cinema. It doesn't matter how long a film runs, what matters is how deep it goes. A masterpiece can only be as long as it is good, any longer and it loses its shape, while any shorter and it doesn't make sense. By the late 1950s, Ingmar Bergman had earned universal acclaim by making compact films such as Summer with Monica, The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries. Into the 1960s, The Virgin Spring and Through a Glass Darkly had won him back-to-back Oscars for Best Foreign Language Picture. By 1966, Bergman had been making films for two decades, and when he released his 27th picture, Persona, it was instantly recognised as yet another masterpiece. Including credits, it lasts all of 84 minutes, and there isn't a scene, a line, a word, a shot, a frame that is wasted. His plot is deceptively simple. Alma, played by Bebe Anderson, is a nurse who is caring for Elizabeth Vogler, played by Lee Ullman. Elizabeth is a famous stage actress who has suddenly stopped speaking. Here is Bergman in 1970 on BBC television explaining how he came up with the idea. I was ill and they had to make some sort of operation. It's operation. Yes? Yes. And uh, uh, I got in, in my arm uh, an injection. My conscious fades out switches off and it's not it, it is a not existing and uh, and that is a marvelous feeling that from existing I'm a, I'm a not existing what begins as treatment gradually becomes disagreement with Alma growing frustrated with Elizabeth refusing or unable to talk before escalating into conflict with Alma arguing with herself as much as she is resenting Elizabeth Then, just when you think everything will descend into all-out physical violence, something quite enigmatic happens. And as the tensions continue to play out, you can't help but begin to think about what is being said by Alma and what is not being said by Elizabeth. That difference opens up a myriad of complex themes and issues, the most central of which is speech. What is said, of which there is a lot, and what is not said, of which there is even more. Bergman's dialogue, or rather Sister Alma's monologues, sometimes rambling, oftentimes banal, always revealing and occasionally startling. Everything she says inadvertently brings into question the meaning of her words. Is she confessing things to her patient? Or, in her frustration, is she trying to provoke Elizabeth out of her silence? If so, her words have ulterior motives and therefore are dishonest. The stories she recounts, are they also lies? Is every word a lie? Is every word a performance? Is that why Elizabeth has chosen silence? Because if every word is a lie, then silence is the only truth. Here is Anderson in 2004, recalling her reaction to first reading the script. With him, you always know that it's something he grasps in your personality and brings out. So I went to him and I said, fine, it's a big role, fine. But why do I always have to play this dumb, naive, young girl who doesn't understand A from B? And here comes Lee, who's even younger, and she's this interesting actress. And he said, well, you know, what's smart of him? He said, you know, she, she has no line reading yet. She's Norwegian. It's better you do the talking. <laughs> okay, I'll do the talking. And uh, then I realized that this naive person that I was portraying was very much like me. Acting is not only to speak. The best roles can be when you're quite Strindberg's the stronger. One role is totally quiet all the time. 
it's not a lesser role, you know, so sometimes it's very rewarding to just be quiet. Elizabeth fell mute during a performance of Euripides' play Medea, the plot of which sees the title character murder her children. It is never explained why Elizabeth has fallen silent, but later we learn that she has a child of her own, a child she does not love because during her pregnancy she attempted a self-induced abortion. While Elizabeth is in hospital, we see her watching television when a news broadcast relays a report from Southeast Asia. She is distressed by what she sees, but when she sees a Buddhist monk burn himself alive in protest over the war in Vietnam, Elizabeth records in horror. Then, later, we see her looking at a photograph taken in May 1943 from the Warsaw Ghetto. There, a young Jewish boy and his family are being rounded up by the Nazis and sent to certain death in a concentration camp. These references are so specific, they could not have been chosen randomly. So what is the link between Medea, the monk and the boy? In the wake of the Holocaust, Theodore Arnold declared, writing poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. In other words, any artistic attempt to address the devastation deludes the reader into thinking something profound, something revelatory, something good, something artistic is coming from the horrors. In reality, the words are feeble, if not futile, barbaric. As for the poetry addressing other things, they seem trivial. What then is the function of art? Is this what Elizabeth, a renowned actress, feels? So helpless in the face of such evil, that she is literally dumbstruck. Here is Ullman, also in 2004, speaking of the challenges she faced in playing a character whose feelings she could only communicate in a non-verbal way. It was a great challenge because I was 25 years. I was, you know, shy. I was kind of innocent when I did uh, Persona. I had been an actress for seven, eight years. But for me to do something which was about a woman who must have been 40 years old because it was about an actress who had misused words for so many years and didn't want to connect with other people. I didn't even understand that kind of problem. But it was really looking at Ingmar, not so much what he said, but the feeling that he allowed me to be what I understood from the script. And he didn't even know I didn't understand anything but to be what I understood, and what I understood was him. I recognized him in a certain way. Bergman was renowned for his searing psychological portraits, and here he is in 1971, talking about psychiatry with American chat show host Dick Cavett. I have been once in my life to psychiatrist. He was very polite and said, yes, Mr. Bergman, I've seen your all the pictures and I've been waiting for you. And we talked, and then I came back another time and we talked. And the third time he said, uh, Mr. Bergman, I'm sorry, you are extremely healthy. That was terrible news. <laughs> Mind you, in the very same interview, this is what Anderson had to say. There was something you misremembered with the psychiatrist. Yes, did yes. I? Yes, I happened to be around because I know that the psychiatrist didn't say he was extremely healthy. He did not say No, that. he said that he was so full of neurosis, so he, if he took them away, he would probably stop making films anymore. <laughs> the film begins with a highly experimental six and a half minute prologue. And throughout the following 78 minutes, Bergman continues in that vein. With freeze frames, jump cuts, flash cuts, slow motion, accelerated frame rates, split screen, sounds that have no origin within the frame, 
images that do not correspond to the sounds, shots deliberately out of focus. Then you have a long single take of a monologue that is immediately repeated verbatim from another angle. And at one point, the celluloid seems to get stuck in the projector and dissolve before our eyes. Bergman was rifling through cinema's handbook of technique and using it to break open the mechanics of cinema itself. Quite literally, the film's first image is taken from the inside of a projector. In other words, Bergman was extending Elizabeth's self-examination and putting it into the camera, running it through the editing bench and projecting everything he found onto the cinema screen. But what Bergman is also doing is using these devices to explore the human mind and its mechanics. How is an identity formed? What is a persona? How do we generate emotions? What is fear? How is anger expressed? Why do we speak? What do we really do when we use words to express how we feel? Do we do so honestly? Here is Paul Schrader explaining the monumental impact Bergman had on cinema. At some point, he made the calculation or the realization that I've got to use these tools. They're just too powerful and they're not being used in the way that I could use them. When Bergman took up that flag, that perspective, he used it not to look at the world, but to look inside the world, to look at himself. That's when that new film language grew and became powerful. Because before that, it was just a kind of tricky way to watch traditional drama in a new, in a new jar. But Bergman said you can use these new self-aware techniques to look inside yourself as well. And you will see much more inside there than we saw before without those techniques. When Bergman put on the medieval male and went to battle in the Nouvelle Vague fashion, I mean, it was very clear that our notions of storytelling had graduated to a level where they already were in painting and, and in literature and in poetry. They just, we weren't there yet in a film, and now we were there. These are the final words spoken in the film, and startlingly, the last word is given to Elizabeth. And what does it mean? Nothing. Literally, nothing. Ingenting is a Swedish word for nothing. As innovative as Bergman was, there are a number of cinematic forerunners that may have served him in exploring his subject. For instance, in 1950, French filmmaker and poet Jean Cocteau made Orphée. Bergman regarded Cocteau's film as amongst the most beautiful in all of French cinema. It is a reimagining of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, and in his film, Cocteau had Orphée try to follow his wife as she travelled through a mirror. Orphée reached out to his reflection, and that image of touching the surface of a picture is reconfigured in the opening minutes of Persona. Then you have the very final scene of Psycho, where, for just a few frames, Alfred Hitchcock ghosted in an image of Mrs. Bates's skull over her son's face. But what Hitchcock was doing 
was alluding to any one of the film adaptations of Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There, two personalities exist within the same body, but in Persona, Bergman suggests that two bodies might just share the same personality. Instead of ghosting in or superimposing one face on top of another, Bergman opted instead to split the image down the centre of the frame to merge the two faces of Ullman and Anderson. Here is Anderson recalling the moment she first saw the image. That was a shock when he said, come to the cutting room, I'll show you something. So we came into the cutting room and he had made these two half faces overlap. And then uh, Lee said, it's Bibi. And I said, no, it's Lee, it's you, Lee. Is it? And then I recognized a little spot I have, have, but is it me? Then I saw Lee's eye. It took a long time to realize what he had done. So uh, we were both very shocked, and it was interesting. <laughs> Anderson gave that interview in 2004. Sadly, in 2009, she suffered a catastrophic stroke that has taken away her ability to speak. Beyond those few films that influenced Bergman, there is a legion of films that have not only copied wholesale from that one shot, but other films that have adapted it and Persona's other devices to articulate their themes. For instance, in Performance, directed by Nicholas Rogue and Donald Camel, the face of a woman, Ferber, reflects back in a mirror so that it divides with that of Chaz, the gangster. Which means it is not only dual identity we are looking at, but also merging gender. In Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Willard has been sent to terminate Kurtz's command. But the colonel's identity seems to haunt the assassin. Just look at the way the shadows play across their faces in the film's final section. Now look at the sequence from Ridley Scott's Thelma Louise, where the two heroines are driving down through Monument Valley. This is where Scott goes for a series of dissolves back and forth between the two women, so their faces appear as one. If you look carefully at Michael Mann's masterpiece, Heat, there is a scene in the first hour where Neil Macaulay's gang are drilling their way through a wall into a security vault. Across the street, Vincent Hanna and his fellow officers are watching intensely on closed-circuit TV. Mann cuts back and forth between the faces of Macaulay and Hanna, flip sides of the same personality. In The Departed, Martin Scorsese used wind chimes made from mirrors to suggest the similarity between his two protagonists, Billy Costigan and Colin Sullivan. And finally, in Black Swan, Darren Aronofsky also used mirrors to probe the symbiosis between Nina, who is supposed to perform the Swan Queen, and Lily, who has been cast as the Black Swan. What's she doing here? He made me your alternate. And that is not to mention the various ways Persona's influence echoes out across Claude Chabrol's La Bichet. Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, Robert Altman's Three Women, Woody Allen's Stardust Memories, Tobe Hooper's Poltergeist, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, Krzysztof Kishlovsky's The Double Life of Veronique, Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs, Neil Jordan's The Crying Game, Peter Weir's The Truman Show, Anthony Mangella's The Talented Mr. Ripley, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, Pedro Almodovar's Talk to Her, Park Chan-wook's Old Boy, and David Fincher's Fight Club. We were the all-singing, all-dancing crap of the world. In a career that spanned close to 60 years, Ingmar Bergman wrote and directed over 40 films. 
His work not only enriched the language of cinema, but his films also deepened our understanding of what it means to be alive. In that time, he made at least 10 masterpieces, of which Persona is the most profound. 